Grab your laughing gear around that. <laughs> and welcome to Shift F1, a podcast about speedy race cars. Uh, I am Drew Scanlon. That is, of course, Australian for uh, eat something to wrap your laughing gear around oh. that. And it's yes. a gear. Good. It just ties in in so many ways. <laughs> that is Danny O'Dwyer. Uh, how are you, Danny? I'm doing great. I'm really excited. Uh, uh, this, uh, like we said in our preseason primer, for those of you who skipped it, um, a lot of moving parts this year. Uh, I, I kind of don't have a clue where the chips are going to fall, so I'm very excited to see this first race and get a deeper understanding of where we're at for, for 2019. Absolutely. Uh, and Rob Zachney, also joining us. How are you, Rob? Not too bad. Uh, pretty excited to get back to the speedy race cars. Pretty excited. Very excited. There we go. (laughs) Uh, one thing before we begin, uh, I did want to just thank everyone who signed up for, uh, the shift F1 Patreon campaign. That has been super cool. If you, uh, if you skip the preseason primer, cause you're an F1 veteran and know everything there is to know about F1, we launched a Patreon campaign. Which is super cool. We're uh, if again, if you missed it, nothing is changing about this podcast. Uh, the the free podcast will still go up as usual, but we're like creating these bonus episodes where we like uh, review uh, movies. We just posted a uh, an episode where we talk about the Williams documentary, which is really fun to record. Um, yeah, it's it sort of says sort of like a a tip jar. So if you pitch in five bucks a month, you get access to all those those fun bonus episodes. Yeah, it's been rad. We have 315 folks already. I, I only set so awesome. like goals for like 2050 and 100, and I kept having to add new goals. So the most recent goal we added was that uh, Drew was going to read uh, Eisenhower's D-Day speech in his NASCAR voice, which uh, I, for one, can't wait to see. <laughs> I didn't... Maybe maybe I didn't think we would actually reach 250, so I just kind of so threw something out there. you something bordering on sacrilege. <laughs> What uh, what could be more American, Rob? Yeah. Uh, yes. So <laughs> look forward to that. I don't know what that's going to look like, uh, but it'll be fun. Uh, but yes, we are gearing up for the first race of the 2019 season. I can't believe it's finally here. It is this Sunday. Uh, and so this episode, we'll, we'll talk about the Australia race, but we're also going to talk about like what's new for the 2019 rules what you'll see uh, new this season. And uh, we're also going to dip into testing a little bit to talk about uh, what to expect from the uh, the new teams. So uh, should we just kick off the the new rules and regulations? Sure. Kind of go not too fast here, um, but I don't want to get bogged down in like technical speak because uh, you like the rabbit hole goes deep on this stuff, uh, especially when we're talking about aerodynamics because that is the certainly the most visible change uh, in 2019 um, is the the look of the aerodynamic elements, yeah. specifically the front wing. So uh, the the big problem that F1 has been facing recently is that like because these things generate so much downforce and aerodynamic turbulence uh, as a result of their downforce, cars can't follow too close behind them um, because if you have turbulent air, your uh, aerodynamic elements are not working as well. So you, you, th- we've seen drivers like hang out like one to two seconds behind the car in front, <laughs> yeah, uh, because they don't want that dirty air, and then only really when they mean it try to pass them. So F1's been trying to curtail that a little bit, 
and thus have made the front and the rear wings much simpler because the the simpler the elements are the less turbulent the airs get um yeah with yeah rob it seems particularly important with regard to the front wings uh so i did a little more reading about this and it didn't occur to me one of the things that they do to sort of speed up the car is that the idea was to move as much air as possible out of the path of the car and so f1 the leading aerodynamic element the front wing uh was designed to do a great deal of what's called outwashing, which was channel air out to the sides and around the car rather than over the car. Uh, therefore, the car has less air to travel through and it generates a little bit less drag. Um, and that's one of the reasons, apparently, that you had these really sort of Baroque front wings with all those like cascade elements along the sides, <laughs> really all like all vectoring the air uh, like out like a flare uh, around the sides of the car. And the problem is um, that's great if you're getting clean air, uh, for one, but it leaves a really complicated, dirty, uh, like wake trail basically behind a car. And so it made it particularly advantageous to be in front and particularly disadvantageous to be following behind a car doing stuff like that. And so the big change this year was they basically forced they they basically forced the wings to be uh, wider, uh, but they're also simpler. Uh, you're not allowed to have a wing that's constructed to do all that outwashing. So if you look at pictures of the front ends of a lot of wings on F1 cars this year, you'll note the cascade elements are basically gone, mm. uh, and what you have are to varying degrees. Uh, big old end plates, and that's about it. And the end plate gets to do whatever outwashing it can do, but you don't get, um, you know, a waterfall of carbon fiber elements doing that job. So uh, what's what's your what's your idea then of the barge board situation? Because they're kind of letting them do whatever they want with those this year. So do you think that they're gonna like some of that stuff is gonna make its way into the barge boards? No, because I because I think it is I think it is about where the air is physically striking the car. Right, the problem with the outwashing is that it basically moved air to the side around the car. I think the idea with the barge board is you're going through the air, right? Like you're no longer directing it out to the side; it's hitting the barge board. You right. can do what you want with it then, uh, and put it to use however you want. But the point is, the car has still had to go through it. And these are the things, the barge boards, sorry, are the things that are sticking up from, they're like uh, right next to the, the side pods, like they're yeah. sticking up from the floor. Uh, like the, the, I don't think they're, they're lower so that I don't think the driver can like look out and see them, but no. they're sort of, uh, you know, directly in line with where the driver is. Yeah. And so maybe a little forward. Yeah. Like basically there's there's a couple elements like underneath the car there's also an FIA mandated plate that is not allowed to abrade too much during a race. Um god what's that called? Not skid the skid plate, plate thing they have. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh and so that's under like the center frame of the car. The barge board is like out to the sides of that underneath the side pods. Uh Got basically. And so if you ever see like just a a, a weird kind of blocky thing underneath the side pods that's you know that, that's kind of your barge board 
I'm curious what becomes of the aerodynamically complex uh, barge board. Because to an extent, doesn't that also scream ground effect aerodynamics? Which is mm. something that the sport has tried to get away from as well. Because it can be really dangerous when, those, when that aerodynamic uh, grip is broken. Um, now, I know that when ground effect was sort of at its peak in, I think, the late 70s, early 80s, um, they were doing some really experimental stuff to, like, sort of vacuum the car onto the track. Fan car. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you, the, the, so, like, people, like, ran concepts like that. Uh, nevertheless, I am really curious to see, as we always do, the unintended consequences of aerodynamics rules changes uh, in yeah. F1. Because every year they're like, we've solved it. Surely this, <laughs> surely this won't go wrong. And then six months later, the engineers will have these barge boards uh, just doing something completely ridiculous that the FAA did not anticipate. Right. I, I think one thing it'll, it'll uh, it's almost certainly to help is um, the cost of manufacturing. Cause mm. they're, uh, because the, the things are so much more simple. They're, the front wings look like, they all, almost look like window blinds at this point. There's a little bit of a wave to a lot of them, um, but you don't have those like crazy fractal flower petal looking things at the end, uh, which just must be really complex to make in carbon fiber. Um, but as you said, Rob, they're because they're less complex, they have been enlarged to compensate the rear and the front wings have been, um, which in the case of the rear wing is also going to make DRS more effective mm. since that <laughs> the whole thing that flips up is now much bigger. Uh, and I saw an estimate saying that it might be as much as 25% more effective. Um, but uh, according to Mercedes's technical director, James Allison, he says the effect on the racing this year will be, quote, modest at best. Mm. Um, and uh, another article kind of points out that these, these changes are really a, they're sort of a stopgap measure ahead of the 2021 regulations. Um, so I, I would expect to, to see this continuing maybe in this direction or at least uh, changing uh, next year as well. Uh, speaking of Mercedes, uh, Rob brought something to light before the um, podcast that I hadn't realized, which is that Valtteri Bottas is really digging this new uh, minimum weight rule. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So um, let's see. Uh, where is that? I had a good explanation of that. Yeah, it was uh, racefans.net, I think, I saw uh, covered. I think they talked to him at Circuit de Catalunya. Oh, okay, but, uh, yes. Uh, so, yeah, there's a now a minimum driver weight of 80 kilograms or 176 pounds. So if you, as a driver, weigh less than that, you have to add ballast to get to 80 <laughs> kilograms. <laughs> So it's not have like a whopper before the yeah. race. Yeah. <laughs> well, and, it's and, not like they're weighing the car and the driver at the same time. And however skinny you can get, however much you know fat mass you can lose, your car is going to be faster. No, every driver is effectively eighty kilograms. So uh, no, no more of this. I think it was a couple of years ago where Sergio Perez said like he had to lose something like ten pounds or something to get down. Like his team was just, like too big for his car. He's cutting uh, waste for his F1 yeah. race, you know. I felt bad for him. He's in the well, sauna doing sit-ups. These guys already have, like, jockey builds anyway. Yeah. So it's, like, I was really surprised. I did not realize that uh, it had sort of gotten that ridiculous with regard to driver weights. Uh, that, you know, Valtteri Bottas was saying that he was getting ill 
uh, during uh, during Jeez. during the season during the winter uh, because basically he was undernourished. You know, you you've yeah. seen him. He's got, he's got a slightly like more powerful build uh, than a lot, a lot of F one drivers. Um, yeah, I didn't realize that basically the teams were pressuring these already slightly built guys to just keep cutting weight. Uh, which I'm I'm glad they imposed a rule like this because uh, there's a point where that becomes deeply unhealthy. Yeah. Um, a few more rules here. I'll go through quickly. Uh, more brake lights. So in addition to the the central low brake light that we're kind of used to, there will now be uh, these two vertical lights on either side of the rear wing, hmm. which are just added for safety. Um. Fuel allowance has been increased by five kilograms, so drivers can attack more during the race instead of trying to save fuel. Uh, tires, uh, we talked about this uh, last season. Them. Yep, no more tires. Yep. Um, so in past years, we had to juggle like last year was seven different compounds mm. from hyper soft, ultra soft, all that stuff. This year, we're only talking about soft, medium, and hard. That's, for a race weekend that's a lie you're fucking you're holding the truth yeah, from I'm us tell us angry. where the bodies are buried in the background there are still five different compounds of varying hardness but only three just like last year only three of those will ever get taken to each race but hmm. instead of them referring to like oh this is uh a super soft ultra soft and hyper soft it's like no this is this is the soft for this race this is the medium for this race this is the hard how <laughs> Rob is incensed. Yeah, go you go, Rob. He looks well, even angrier than Pirelli posting the shit on Twitter, <laughs> being like, "Ah, here's our new system." And first, they first they reveal like it's so much simpler. All you've got is uh, hard, medium, and soft. So much better. By the way, to understand what that means, here for each race is <laughs> this chart connecting those three compounds: hard, medium, soft to the C1, C2, C3, C4, C5 compounds they, cor- they, they correspond to. And so if you actually want to know what the hell tire somebody is running, you have to know in your head what C1 was, like whether, like whether soft is yeah. C1 that week, which is a preposterous, it's a preposterous which I, solution. I, which I think is the other way around. I think C1 is the hardest, isn't it? C1's the hardest. Yeah, so you have to rem- you, yeah, so you have to remember that as well. <laughs> Fantastic. But like, here's, here's the thing. Like, in in, uh, in my show notes here that I have for uh, this show, I have always had a section for tires where we talk about, like, oh, what tires is going to be in this race? Hypersoft, Ultrasoft, and Supersoft. Hmm. And I said it for every single episode. What did that actually tell us? I don't, I don't think I care at all if, if it's C2, 3, and 4, or C3, 4, and 5. Like, to me, like, if I were running a Formula One car and I knew that, like, oh, on these types of circuits, my uh, C4 tires at this temperature during the day are probably going to be better than the C5 tires, so it's a good thing they picked the C4s instead of the C5s for this one. I'm but already like, sick of these C fucking Yeah, numbers. see? <laughs> uh, so I don't know. It's My like, counter-argument... Functionally, I don't see a difference. My counter-argument is that, first of all, like the Hypersoft, for instance, is sort of your classic, like, that compound is chewing gum. 
Uh, and wherever <laughs> wherever that tire pops up, it might be because of track surface or whatever. What you do know is that physically, that compound has a certain characteristic, a certain quality. It's not just a soft tire. It's a special kind of soft tire that is uniquely grippy and has uniquely poor durability. And that is useful information to compare it to. For instance, we saw cars have specific compounds they ran like garbage on. I think it was Ferrari last year. Whenever they end on the soft compound, the yellow stripe soft compound, bad things seem to happen to them. Uh, because for whatever reason, the de design of that car and that particular compound seem to interface poorly across a season. I don't know. I, th I, I feel like they are obscuring... The reality is still the reality. Yeah. And what they've done is created a way to obscure that. But we're still going to see the effects of that underlying reality. And now to access a conversation about it, to discuss what the hell we are seeing, we have to sort of get a machete and sort of hack past <laughs> this, you know, basic, this basically like, false triumvirate of hard medium soft to get to like what are they actually running this weekend yeah i kind of i kind of agree rob on this only because i i agree totally drew that like in ultimately it was kind of meaningless most of the time except as like a comparison to the other tire so so in the actual race knowing soft medium and hard was like it, it only really mattered in relation to what everyone else is running the part that i don't like is the fact that they bothered to throw the the C's into this, which they kind of have to, because it's not three tires; it's it's a set of five. It's not like old seasons where, where perhaps it would, there was a smaller number of them. Is that now they've created a situation where you have to pull out your fucking decoder ring to to like figure out what it is? Like, if I, if if that wasn't part of it, I'd be happy enough. But it's just, oh, uh, it. I don't know. It's it's a le in a weird way. It's less elegant, like because we know the truth now. We know that there's you know it's not the same soft tire week one to week two necessarily so i don't know it this seems like a really good idea on paper to all of us and then the actual reality of it is just perhaps <laughs> even more confusing than it was last year eh, we'll see yeah. uh all right I'll, I'll keep it in there for now um <laughs> but uh yeah i i think it'll certainly be easier it'll be easier for people who are new to the sport to watch it on tv yes but they will be getting less information. Yeah. They haven't been red-pilled yet by the by the tires. They don't know what's going on behind the scenes. Wait, that term means something else now, doesn't it? Nope, sorry. You pretty much set it in stone now. Like, Jordan Peterson's <laughs> going to be doing videos about tire compounds. There's a hidden Ugh. symbology of... Of uh, tire he, he, compounds. He's not, he's not coming to Patreon, so it doesn't. Yeah, we'll, we'll still be we'll still be the only F one podcast on Patreon. Are we? I don't even know if we are. Who knows? I don't know. I don't know what you guys are talking about either. I'm just gonna move on. <laughs> uh, penalties, grid penalties. I'm just gonna read this uh, verbatim. Cool. Um, uh, in 2018, if you racked up more than 15 spots worth of grid penalties, oh yeah, by changing your power unit parts, you started at the back of the grid. When more than one driver did that, though, their order was determined by when they actually used their new parts on track. Because not everybody can start at, quote, the back of the grid. So they had to order them somehow. So at first mm. practice at the Russian Grand Prix last year, four cars lined up at the pit exit way before the session even started. Just so that they could, quote, use their parts on track and line up first. 
So then at that point, what is the point of even qualifying? Those drivers would go out, set one lap in Q1 to satisfy the 107% rule and call it a day. So in 2019, if a bunch of drivers are pushed to the back of the grid for penalties, they'll line up in the order that they qualified. Mm. So it incentivizes them to not just quit qualifying. Uh, also, drivers outside the 107% rule will, will be placed at the back behind the penalty guys. So, Williams, take notice. Oh, come on. I don't, they'll be fine with 107%, right? They're not going <laughs> to fall outside that window. Right? I mean, Things if, are the going great. if they forgot to ship the car, maybe. A uh. <laughs> uh, few more quick things here. Biometric gloves. Uh, will Every driver will wear those Finally. to help medical staff. Yeah, I kind of wish time. they would uh, show the driver's heart rate on camera. I think that'd be cool. I don't think that'll yeah. happen, though. Uh, there's a checkered flag light panel at the finish line instead of just the waved flag because we had some trouble with that last year. Yeah, we sure did. Uh, mirror regulations have been relaxed a little bit because the rear wing is so much bigger. Uh, there's now a camera pointed at the driver's face, which I think I, we might see on TV. Wow, I thought you were going to say they stuck a camera in the back of the car like your new Subaru. Like, like, <laughs> oh, like a reverse, reverse camera. <laughs> yeah. uh, Formula E has that. Does it really? Uh, oh, not for the driver, but they have oh. like a street level reverse yes. camera. Hmm. Uh, there's also no longer a designated scrutineering period where officials look over your car. Instead, there will just be random checks. Okay. Seb's going to love that. Just new, <laughs> just new occasions for him to flip out and just yeah. beach that yeah. thing on the nearest scale. <laughs> and, and ram officials. Yep. Yeah. Uh, overtaking on race restarts is not allowed until a driver has crossed the finishing line rather than the earlier safety car line as oh. previous. Interesting. Oh. Okay. Also, they have unrestricted CFD, computational fluid dynamics, uh, to help teams get to the 2021 regulations. So you can right. use your computers to do all kinds of simulator work now, as what opposed was, to it being regulated before. It was, it was only a number that was of a cost saving measure, right? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. So doesn't that basically give license to the manufacturers to just like uncork their CFD? simulations and like the hell with everyone else like you know what i mean because like yeah cfd is expensive that's that's the thing too when we're talking about uh those graphics cards bitcoin just (laughs) skyrocketed their prices yeah we're we're talking about those we're talking about like really detailed aerodynamic fluid simulations and that stuff is to do it accurately um is enormously processor intensive and so the weird, the, the weird thing is it's useful because it allows you to experiment with stuff without necessarily building something and putting it in a wind tunnel or actually having to, to, to build a wind tunnel. Uh, but at the same time, there's, an ex- there's a different sort of expense and resource issue associated with it. And so I guess I'm a little curious, like, what the thinking is behind changing this regulation yeah, isn't this kind of like why these regulations are here so that a team with a lot of money doesn't get a, a leg up? Unless they're hoping that like, you know, all all ships will rise kind of situation that like they're going to, some of that data by the time they get to the, was it 2021? Yeah. That like that'll be shared across teams or will trickle down with the teams that, you know, once the chassis are being sold, old chassis are being sold to other teams. I don't know. Mm, yeah. 
Yeah, I don't know. Who knows? Uh, but the biggest change, uh, well, not the biggest, but a, a big change, late-breaking news here, fastest lap gets a championship point. What? Yes. Baby, Formula E. This? I did yeah. not know. This has been an FE for three or four. This this almost decided the champ, or did it decide the championship? Remember that crazy London race yeah. two years ago? Or New- Yeah, New York maybe, was it? The final where yeah. it came down to the fastest lap. That's insane. Yes, this is this basically just happened right before we recorded this. Uh, so if you get in the top, you have to get in the top ten to get the point. Oh, that sucks! But, I don't like. Uh, yeah, that's I don't not get what that happens. restriction. Yeah. So let, uh, let's let some other teams with low fuel, some minnows, <laughs> you know, get, let's get Williams get a point by cranking one out in the last lap. <laughs> but here's the interesting thing: if you achieve the feat and finish in eleventh or lower or fail to finish, no point will be allocated. I'm reading from F1.com. The system will give an extra dimension to the race drivers running inside the top 10 because they'll have something extra to fight for. Equally, those outside the top 10 still have an incentive to get the fastest lap as they can prevent a rival from getting it, even if the point doesn't pass to them. But they're not. But they're probably not fighting for major championship points. Like, I guess what we're hoping for here is that someone in ninth or 10th like you get 10th you got a point so the 10th place person maybe is like i can double my money and just like (laughs) foot to the floor like on like bald tires just tries to like (laughs) sail that thing uh after the white flag comes out we see what happens Um, in a weird way i wonder is there a disincentive to because a lot of the teams who are in the bottom half have sister teams that are in the top half so maybe they don't want to be like running denial on on their like you know uh, on their sister team or maybe actually they're trying to do it to screw over the other i don't know i just think about how many times anyone in the top 10 it's come down to one point at the end of the season or like a handful it's usually a this deltas, I mean, maybe between ninth and tenth for the championship, but like usually the deltas are, you know, fifteen, twenty, or a hundred. So uh, Valtteri Bottas last year would have come in third place in the drivers' championship instead of fifth. You're, what? How close was they? Uh, That's they were insane. Like, yeah, so he a had a bunch of, of fast laps, and he just wasn't yeah. getting the results. Oh, over the course of the season. Oh, over wow. the course of the season. Yeah. Okay, I take it back. That's awesome. Um, in two thousand eight. Huh. Massa would have won the championship. Oh, that's Shit, funny. Okay, I'm in favor that's of it. That's funny. Yeah. yeah, right. Yeah, this rule. High time, I say. Uh, <laughs> this is this is the kind of visionary leadership I think we can uh, expect under Chase Carey, and I, for one, uh, love it. Uh, interesting. That's cool. Uh, worth pointing out uh, that for the first nine years that Formula One existed, this was the case. Yeah, it's not that uncommon in in a lot of uh, racing disciplines. It's uh, I feel like that's the first substantive change to F one point scoring in quite a while. It's always been top ten, twenty five down, right? I can't. Think uh, of well, it was else. it was top five, um, right? For the for uh, a lot, and then they, when they got rid of the fastest lap, that became one point for sixth place. Huh. And it was like that for a while, I think. Right. Yeah, I. Yeah, it's uh <laughs> I think I think they're doing the top 10 thing to prevent people from just pitting and getting a fresh set of tires and uh banging Coasting. in a lap because then that's kind of artificial. Like they, I think they want the uh the fastest lap to be earned in racing. 
as opposed to just yeah. ah, I'm gonna go qualify while this race is happening. Um, but yeah, I, I, that's fun. Uh, and that's kind of everything I have for rule changes. It's so, a good thing everything else stayed the exact same between last year and this year. You know, yeah. <laughs> same well, teams, same drivers. Oh yeah. There's one thing I did see. It looks like they changed, which I could be getting this wrong, but they sort of fixed certain. They standardized certain places where the engine interfaces with the rest of the car. Hmm. Uh, so there's like fixed mounting locations and fixed shaft locations oh. uh, in the cars, which I guess theoretically is to my suspicion is we don't want another mo- uh, Honda disaster. Like my suspicion is it's that <laughs> right. That like F1 looked at, the, looked at what happened with McLaren and Honda and were like, okay, clearly there was a misalignment between the engine manufacturer and mm. well, the Renault thing probably wasn't good for them either. But anyway, it sort of clears up this notion that like the people designing the engine might have weird constraints just forced on them uh, by people designing the chassis. And those two sides never talk to each other. So now there's right. like forced right. yeah. overlap between some key elements of how it's the part of engine... the formula now. Yeah. Mm. Okay. Yeah. I could see Red Bull Renault, uh, kind of leading to this because from at least from uh, uh, what I can tell in the newly released F1 documentary Drive to, to, Survive, uh, yeah. to Survive on Netflix, which is fantastic. Uh, it, it seems like Renault was just making their own thing and then delivered it to Red Bull without any without any readmes, without any uh, well, documentation. And we saw a thing on Grand Prix Driver on Amazon yeah, last that too. year where like uh, Honda show up with the engine to McLaren yeah. and there's kind of this well what do you expect us to do with this it doesn't fit and then everyone just sort of sits down on the factory floor and starts trying to figure out what the hell happened here yeah uh, yeah okay that's cool hopefully that'll <laughs> prevent some of those uh, penalties from taking place uh, should we get into testing Rob I know you've been digging deep into uh time sheets and uh making some predictions about teams etc yeah i mean so the thing is testing is difficult to assess because do we believe that teams showed their best form Mm. uh like if lewis hamilton came out of this testing saying that he believed ferrari had a significant edge on mercedes this year memory serves they were singing a similar tune after testing last year and then sure uh you know voila the mercedes miraculously gained a couple seconds uh you know the minute (laughs) the the minute qualifying started in australia uh so i think everybody wants to say that though right because like they want to manage expectations like if if they're coming out and saying like oh we're gonna be awesome and then they're not well then their sponsors are gonna go like well what i mean you said you were gonna be great but they've always pushed that that little bit further. They've always like there's there's being sort of like contrite, and then what they were sort of doing was 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 pulling a fast one. And they've done it like the past couple. Yeah, totally <laughs> yep. sandbagging. Yeah, one hundred percent. Yeah, like they seem Gee, to use it a lot for you know. My hammy's sure been hurting a little lately. <laughs> I don't know. I just you know you're probably gonna win. 
I probably you guys you guys have me. Uh, so I, I think testing is weird for what it implies about the top teams. What yeah. I will say is Charles Leclerc looked for real. Mm-hmm. Um, Leclerc looked like he is going to pose a real challenge to Vettel. Um, and you know, right now that's we don't see that being an issue yet. But again, like just watch how quickly things can can change at Ferrari. Uh, when, when someone's performing really well, so that's that's one aspect of this. I think the Ferrari Mercedes uh, comparison. I don't think I don't think we're going to know anything about Ferrari and Mercedes from testing. Uh, I don't trust the times they posted. Genuinely, right. I think they they were testing for reliability. I think their true pace has probably been concealed. I will say, uh, it is interesting that last day of testing, uh, Vettel and Hamilton posted best laps within three one-thousandths of a second of one another. Um, I don't know what that... You know what I mean? I yeah. <laughs> That was unusual for all the testing. Uh, that was weird. Where things get, I think, maybe a little more predictive is when you're talking about the uh, teams that have been outside that championship contention uh, of late. And so I suspect with with testing, we're getting a slightly better read on Renault's uh, true pace, on Red Bull's true true pace, uh, Racing Point. Uh, so I suspect that who that's who testing tends to be uh, pretty representative of, and they look pretty competitive. The times they're posting uh, were all pretty they're all pretty compact there. Uh, in the middle, you, you you would have just a few tenths of a second covering a good portion of the field in these uh, test section test sessions at uh, Catalonia. The unequivocal thing we learned from testing is that things are not going well at Williams. <laughs> yeah, like understatement of the year there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so they. They postponed. Uh, they postponed their first drive, the sort of shakedown drive uh, for the car, uh, which didn't seem too eyebrow raising. But then a, they didn't have a car ready to go uh, for the first day at Catalonia, and then it wasn't ready for the second day. And they didn't really get their car. Apparently, did not arrive and get assembled until I think like the the final day mm-hmm. of testing. Uh, or the or the next to last day of testing, and so they basically had to build the thing overnight, and it ran extremely poorly uh, in that. So to give you an example, uh, so the day they ran in the first uh, in the first test, um, the, the, they're sort of the, the the sort of maiden voyage. Uh, Tar Rosso set the fast time for that session at a minute seventeen point seven. Williams. Posted a minute twenty five point six. Oh boy, things were not Yikes. as bad uh, the second day that Williams ran uh, for the first test session. Uh, Kubica got it to a one twenty one point five, but still, that's a good four point one five seconds off the pace. Like that is death in an F one car. That is not a competitive car by any stretch of the imagination. Things got a little tighter uh, toward the end. You started to see um, the Williams posting more respectable times, but those are end of session. Those, that's end of testing times. Again, to what degree were people showing their best stuff? 
Um, but Williams did cut it down. Uh, Kubica posted a one eighteen point nine uh, by the end of testing, which was at least in the was at least in the stadium, right there. You know, yeah, they got. I'm, I'm saying that's two point seven seconds off the lead. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I mean, uh, what you say though about reliability, though, uh, I think that that's something that everyone is shooting for in testing, and that you can see. Yeah. Uh, and frankly, I'm just happy to see the McLaren doing so well because in the past few years, especially with the Honda stuff, they had so many problems. Um, Haas, I think, broke down a couple times in this test. A couple of crashes uh, too. Gasly. Um, yeah, Gasly crashed. A bunch of people spun off, but I guess yeah. you know that's that's testing. Uh, Kimmy went off on his first lap. He wasn't the only one. Who's the the young kid at um? Oh, I forget one of the one of the rookies came out and spun Albon. Yeah, on his like fifth turn. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> put it in the gravel. Yeah, that's gonna happen. But I mean, uh, Williams's problems only started there. It you know, a lot worse has happened since. I'm not sure if we want to get into it now, but sure. Yeah. You, well, Danny, I, you want to catch us up? Sure. On the, I mean, the saga. Well, but it sounded like what was hap- at least from what we sort of happened afterwards. The post mortem was Claire Williams was talking about how they might have been, uh, I don't know, caught out. Doesn't seem like the right thing, but there was changes to the technical regulations that they just weren't able to, um, uh, I guess, get done into the car on time, um, and then. The most shocking part of all this is that Paddy Lowe, technical director, um, has has he has he quit or he's taken a leave of absence? Right, he's yes, not a fully leave quit. of absence from the business for personal reasons. Right, a which, week before the start of the season. At the season, and presumably he's at the you know the, he is the tip of the spear. Maybe maybe not for responsibility. Perhaps maybe the maybe Claire is is there, but for for fixing this problem, you would assume at this stage that he's he's, he's the technical chief of Williams. Yeah. And and also a lot of the scuttlebutt coming out of some of the other people at Williams is, is saying that this is, you know, perhaps perhaps a political thing, but also the absolute wrong decision to be making. Like if they want to salvage this car, and 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 you know, have do as much as they can with the very little amount of time that's left between um, uh, when that happened in Melbourne. That the last thing they should be doing is is creating a power vacuum and kicking out Paddy Lowe who's an incredible, you know, anyone who knows F1 knows knows how um uh useful he can be to a team. So yeah, it's um it's it's I I wish there was a documentary going on right now will you know we've <laughs> yeah. had, we've been watching a lot of documentaries over the past couple of years embedded at F1 teams and god I'd love to know it's where why the decision was made and who it was who made it whether he did or whether the yeah. Paris that Bia Williams did. Yeah, I think uh, certainly this is a conversation that bears directly, not to shell this too hard, but like one of the Patreon episodes we did covered the Williams documentary uh, mm. that's current currently on Netflix. And that gives us a really great insight to the history of that team and some of the dynamics at play within this team. I have mixed, it's not mixed feelings. I don't fully know what to make of this because there's no way I have the information to make informed judgments but that's not going to stop me from (laughs) shooting my mouth off right here so peter windsor and uh he's been around for for ages he's very uh much a part of the f1 scene he talks to everybody knows everybody uh he is he's talked to he's talked to people on the technical side for ages uh he said straight up when when patty lowe uh that leave of absence journalist 
he was a journalist, and then he also became the point man for the USF-1 program that sort of oh, wow. tried I- to get off the ground like 15 years ago and uh, ended up kind of imploding. Uh, but yeah, so he's a longtime uh, journalist, uh, but also briefly, uh, you know, was on the operations side of uh, of F1. He came out on Twitter and he said, Patty Lowe is not the problem. This is a bad move. Mm-hmm. And it's also worth noting that in 2018, uh, Williams lost a longtime aerodynamicist and a longtime chief designer. Right. Now... The other thing, and Craig Scarborough, who does a lot of F1 technical analysis, he pops up at racefans.net a lot. Um, he said that he had off-the-record sources at Williams saying that there's been interference from the commercial side at Williams on the engineering side. The thing that gives me pause in all this is that journalists have... a hard time being objective about their sources if somebody talks to you all the time gives you good information and is helpful it's very hard not you rely on them for expert opinion you are inclined Mm -hmm. to believe their judgments but i will also tell you this any engineer if you talk to them in any field any engineer will probably tell you that it's (laughs) these fucking money men these suits (laughs) who don't know what they're doing getting in the way of us engineers who would who would have this thing running like a swiss watch if they just get out of our way because we're engineers we know what we're doing they don't fuck off here's the other thing sometimes people just need to make a change like, it looks like there is a toxic dynamic taking shape at Williams. Maybe it's Claire Williams' fault, and it is on the commercial side, and the engineers are blameless. Maybe there's a breakdown just somewhere in that relationship. Or maybe it's the fact that the engineers responsible for the, for the car have turned in a piece of shit for the last three years. Uh, either way, the team's name is Williams. Like, I kind like, to an extent... There is a case to be made that things need to be shaken up. Sometimes that is the solution. Sometimes any change is a good change. And if the engineers are not getting along with the commercial side, they're not getting along with uh, perhaps like Claire Williams is who they're talking about. Um, it's within, it's not unreasonable for the pr- team principal to, say, to hand them their walking papers. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> like you said, it's it's impossible to know where all this stuff stems from um, without access to the team. But uh, Dieter Rankin on racefans.net did put together a pretty good, at least I thought so, uh, article about kind of the downfall of Williams. And he's tried to trace like what exactly has happened for the last uh, 20 years. Um, and I mean, it's... I, I, it's a lot of financial stuff. Uh, he, he kind of places a lot of the blame on the 1998 Concord Agreement, which is sort of this regulating document uh, that came into being when Bernie, um, let's see, switched. Yeah, I have a quote here. Where before the team shared 85% of F1, F1's underlying revenues from uh, January 1st, 98, Bernie and SLEC, named for his then-wife Slavia Eccleston, retained around 77% of the sport's bottom line, with 12 teams sharing 23% between them. <laughs> Subsequently, most outfits sold out to big money, 
Benetton to Renault, McLaren to a significant share of uh, Mercedes, uh, Stewart to Ford Jaguar, etc. Uh, blah, 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 blah. But Williams kept being Williams, basically, is it? And didn't uh, secure um, the sort of close ties that other teams did. And then that kind of persisted into the late 90s uh, when this was easy because TV ratings uh, brought in a lot of sponsorship money. But then that went away with pay TV in 2005. And it just seems like Williams has never really caught up to the financial models that other teams uh have uh, adopted like they they in the the documentary um drive to survive claire williams says we are not going we are never going to be a b team mm. and so if you're not going to be a b team like if you're not going to be a customer team um and have a bunch of you know uh, and buy all your stuff like haas or uh you know even um uh alpha uh, or um, uh, Force India, you know, uh, I think, well, no, they build a lot of their stuff too. But um, if you're not going to do that, are you then going to be a constructor? And uh, do you have the money to do that? Like the, he points out again in this article, which I will link in the show notes, and it's great, um, that like McLaren's kind of like this too, but they have like, uh, they have oil money from somewhere or something. They have like a hundred million dollars that just got injected from uh, from shareholders. So Williams is in this weird limbo financially and it just that coupled with and maybe because of this it has manifested in like uh, structural problems but they're just in this strange environment that, that they seem to be floundering in is there an element as well like I'm not, not this is not a conspiracy theory to a point <laughs> I know it's the <laughs> like, fucking best thing you can crazy. say at the start of your argument <laughs> no <laughs> okay so claire williams has been on the record for a while uh frustrated with the overall direction of the sport Mm -hmm. we are on the eve of renegotiating the entire structure of formula one particularly uh how money is distributed among the teams williams has been complaining for ages that the distribution is not equitable which is absolutely true uh and that it is ridiculous uh, that the situation on the grid where, you, where it's basically populated by a bunch of B teams who aren't really competing uh, with, with the top teams uh, is kind of absurd for Formula One, uh, where really you've only got like three teams that are actually racing for anything. And then everyone else is positioning, uh, you know, for, for, for end of year uh, prize money distribution. <laughs> I could see... A situation here where Williams has had hard times. That's been inevitable. But to a degree, this is a useful time for Williams to very publicly walk out on the ledge and be like, if things don't change, we're gone. And to a degree, like I think there's a possibility of some lemonade from lemons here which is that Williams hasn't kept up with the times. They've been sort of mired in the back with a bad car for years. Uh, They tried a pay driver thing. That didn't work out particularly well. To a degree, it is a useful time for Williams to look desperate and like they might be about to fold at any minute because I I genuinely don't think anyone wants that to happen. They're a big Mm -hmm. name. Uh, The the sport wants to be adding teams, not, uh, not shutting them down. And having one of the last independent operators sort of calling attention to their plight 
is a very useful thing to take into the, the negotiations, which are really coming down to the wire uh, this year. And so that's 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 the thing I'm sort of that I'm sort of looking at all this and I'm wondering if you're stuck there with a bad car, is there something kind of useful about just really leaning into the fact that your situation is a disaster? Yeah, uh, in order to hold more chips. Yeah, they yeah. hold more chips than maybe people realize. That's, yeah. a, that's an interesting conspiracy theory, Rob. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I think uh, in, in any case, I doubt they would have wanted to. There, there does seem to be that 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 bitter infighting, which you know sometimes marries what with the reality of what's wrong with the car. But you know, it's it's often just a separate sort of problem that's going on. It it's such an interesting situation for them. We watched, we did the, the Patreon episode about williams and whatnot and they don't really get much into uh, you know trying to do any sort of evaluation of claire's career there but it does it is an interesting situation to be in when the boss has their name over the the top of the the car right the top of the garage like they yeah i like i i i don't want to say either way but like you that they'd have to do a really terrible job to lose their job at that stage. You gotta feel like, and you know, if there are whispers saying that maybe you know the the hammer is about to come down there, but God, it, you just you can't imagine a worse start to a season that before you know anyone's even touched the the tarmac during a race weekend, then then we're stuck in this situation. Um, and especially with like it's such an interesting spot for them to be in with like Kubica and Russell as well. It's it's an interesting pairing of drivers like. I just worry that we're going to see them at the back of the grid every single race now. Or it clears the road for Robert Kubica to become the first <laughs> driver chief designer in F1 history. He he is a he is a man who likes to get in there with a He's a, a setup guy. Yeah. He's a setup guy. This is this is the galaxy brain. So this is again not a conspiracy <laughs> theory. Okay, you just had to move Patty Lowe out of the way. Right. So that we could watch Kubica ascend. Okay, how about this? How about this? Rocket Kubica racing. Ooh. <laughs> Got a nice ring to it. <laughs> Speaking of conspiracy theories, Mission Winnow. Oh, Jesus. Uh, <laughs> Speaking of weird new team names. Yes. Um, so this is, we talked a little bit about this, uh, the preseason episode, but Mission Winnow is this weird front for philip morris they're a ferrari sponsor <laughs> and you're not allowed to advertise tobacco products on formula one cars it's not a tobacco uh, product it's a it's right a it's a technological it's, product it's, that is around the world of tobacco you yeah, know Hooli? corporate yeah <laughs> corporate doublespeak that's what it is um australia didn't like the cut of ferrari's jib on this one and has uh launched an investigation into whether it's from motorsport.com, whether the initiative introduced by Ferrari title sponsor Philip Morris late last year contravened laws banning tobacco advertising. Um, so uh, they've removed their logos from the Ferrari car for Australia. Australia is like particularly, um, they were one of the first, except for France, they're one of the first countries to ban um, the tobacco and, and alcohol thing. Um, okay. Yeah, so apparently France has had that for a long, long time. Can I read you what is Mission Winnow from the Mission Winnow website's frequently Please do. asked Please questions? Do. Mission yeah. Winnow is a PMI-driven initiative to demonstrate our commitment to continuous innovation and development of new solutions that can expedite positive change for society. That's beautiful. What? I love all of that. Oh. Yeah. Innovation, like t- positive change. Uh- <laughs> 
Sounds like a really cool company, you guys. It's like we fed computer speak into this AI and <laughs> this is the mission statement it's spat out. Uh, I There are some really great quotes in this article. Um, a Philip Morris representative was adamant that the branding, quote, does not advertise or promote our company's products. <laughs> what? Contravening it, everything that advertising is being created look, for. Uh-huh. Hey, in another have you quote, ever seen an F1 car smoke a cigarette? I rest my case. <laughs> in another quote, oh Ferrari, Ferrari CEO, Luis Camarelli, says, uh, Mission Winnow is not a brand. It has nothing to do with tobacco because it concerns the transition from tobacco to electronic products. So good. Hey, man, you can't spell Mission Winnow without win. <laughs> oh. Uh, while we're talking about this, I got a really good email from um, uh, Dennis, by the way, shiftf1podcast at gmail.com. Ooh. You can send us an email. I'll fix, I'll fix the other one any day now. Uh, so he, uh, he goes into, uh, kind of like the, the history of Ferrari and Marlboro at this point. Um, because this is, this has gone on for longer than Mission Winnow. So tobacco sponsors, he says, uh, have been banned in the UK, France, and Germany for uh, a long time, which meant the teams generally had some other kind of option in place. Some teams would carry another sponsor for the event, but most teams just did something to the logos to make it legal. The most common options were replacing it with the team name or using a barcode type replacement. So maybe, mm. I don't know if you guys, have, I, I know you guys have, but um, listeners may have seen old pictures of a Ferrari with a barcode on the back, yeah, uh, like the rear wing that used to say Marlboro, but because they couldn't do that in UK, France, and Germany, uh, they just replaced it with like something that kind of looked like it, like density-wise, uh, typographically. Like at a glance. And if yeah. you scanned it, you'd contracted a higher killer. <laughs> uh, so uh, Dennis continues, when tobacco sponsors got banned in F1 for the entire sport, Ferrari suddenly showed up with the barcode it had used in France, Britain, and Germany in the past, mm. meaning they were still sponsored by Philip Morris, and they tried to cash in on the association of that specific look with Marlboro. They eventually got called out on it and were forced to remove the barcodes. Sometime later, they suddenly changed their Scuderia Ferrari logo. It changed into a white box with a red boomerang on top, on which the well-known yellow shield with Prancing Horse was placed. It had a very much a Marlboro vibe, helped by the logo appearing on the car at positions where the Marlboro logo typically was. In 2018, the logo disappeared off the car, but then suddenly the Mission Winnow logos appeared. Given the whole italics look that mirrors itself uh, like a Marlboro logo on its side. I would also add uh, here, this is Drew talking, that Mission Winnow has the same number of syllables as Marlboro and starts and ends with the same sounds. <laughs> it sounds like it's getting more and more difficult for you to pronounce Marlboro the longer the, it's, uh, this, this part of the podcast goes It on. has always been hard for me. <laughs> it's, a t- it's a tricky one. I haven't been speaking English very long. Uh, yeah, this is an insane thing, and I can't wait yeah. to see how it develops. It's fucking weird. Ugh. I just, I hope it ends with, like, a really super serious, solemn, like, you know, you hear, like, the low ambient music sort of come <laughs> up, and then it's like, Ferrari, we believe in performance. And it's like engines revving, engineers, like, doing it, you know, in, in the wind tunnel, like, people with clipboards, uh, you know, mechanics doing a quick tire change. 
And then, and so do our friends at Philip Morris. And then cut to a white lab room where you see a custom Ferrari branded vape rig just spitting out the fattest clouds you've ever seen. That's that is my goal for this partnership. It's like it's it's like those Sebastian Vettel like Infinity commercials where he pretended to be like super into driving a sensible Infinity small SUV. Uh, it'll it'll be like that, but with like vaping. My name is yeah. Sebastian Vettel, and I like to rip fat. No, coffee. actually, it's gotta be Leclerc, right? He's young. Yeah, totally. <laughs> He's like, Kids look at my cigarette. Check out my jewel cannon. <laughs> uh, let's move on. Right. Um, some changes are coming to F1 TV. Uh, this is Formula One subscription service where you can watch live races and replays uh, for a price. Um, they're apparently introducing Formula Two live uh, coverage and replays, which is awesome. Uh, yeah. They didn't they didn't have that last year, which is a real big bummer. Uh, Formula Two kicks off in Bahrain, and they're going to have F3 and Porsche Super Cup. By the way, uh, Tatiana Calderon, the um, uh, 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 not a replacement driver. What's the third driver called? Reserve. Testing. Reserve driver. Yeah. Uh, for Alfa Romeo, she is racing uh, in Formula Two this year. So awesome. uh, I will definitely be watching that because that's super cool. Uh, they also said in this article on Formula1.com that every single race since 1981 is now on F1 archive. Awesome. But I went and checked, and that is not the case. So oh. uh, I don't know if that's coming soon or what. Um, but yeah, they have an archive. Like if you sign up for F1 TV, you get access to the archive of like old historical races, but there's only like a handful on there. So I would love to see them, uh, you know, really, really spread that out. Um, I had mentioned in the uh, preseason primer that there's a uh, spotter's guide made by um, a user on Reddit every year. I, it hadn't come up by that time, um, but it is now up at spotterguide.cool. uh and uh that'll be really useful i think for um people who are uh new to the sport and looking for ways to recognize drivers and cars on track so i will link that also in the show notes uh wow okay anybody else got any news items Nah. all right well let's let's take it to australia yeah so uh australia's coming up it's uh one of my favorite tracks uh this will be the fifth million time i've done a track walk for this so instead of just talking about <laughs> the uh the circuit itself i decided to do a bit of research into the the history of the circuit because it's a sort of a relatively new one in that they sort of started using melbourne specifically in 1996 it was uh it was in um adelaide before there um uh, on, uh, from 1985 KK Rosberg won the first one uh, and we're going to have it until uh, 2023 um, is, is where they have it signed up until um, but there's been a couple of uh, interesting little races that have happened at the Australian Grand Prix over the years um, did you know that the shortest F1 race ever happened at the Australian Grand Prix no what happened it was in 1991 um, and can you any guesses let's do our prices right here any guesses how many laps it was uh, Drew you go first well okay 91 did they there are rules that like if a race doesn't go over a certain distance it's not a race or there are now okay Uh (laughs) (laughs) uh boy what could it have been like a weather maybe uh i'll say just give me a number just give me a number off the top of your head 
Okay. I'm going to give you Rob. 18. Okay. Uh, what's Price is Right? If you go over, you don't win? Correct. Okay, so Drew wins by default. It was 16 laps. Oh, um, wow. But they actually, confusion uh, caused by the uh, the race officials meant that the results were actually declared from the 14th lap. Um, oh my which, God. Is, which is just as well, because in those two laps, two of the podium sitters crashed. Um, <laughs> Senna, who officially won the race, um, which was 24 minutes in total, um, uh, was uh, finished the race with a, a no front left wheel after a collision. Um, the podium ceremony had Ayrton Senna on top, Gerhard Berger in second. Uh, Nigel Mansell was not present because he was in hospital um after injuries he sustained on the crash uh, on uh, lap 16 <laughs> two laps after the race was uh, supposed to be called off um uh Senna and Berger both revealed at the press conference that they would not have started the race if it wasn't up to the constructors championships so uh, at that stage Senna had already won the the championship but the construction uh, constructors championship was still up to up for grabs um i have a, a cut here from a from a news article um N- nigel mansell after uh, being helped from his williams reno commented that everything was okay other than that was a complete joke i mean there was debris all over the place i've got a headache like there's no tomorrow so i probably uh, got a little bit of a concussion um with less than 75% of the race distance being completed, half the usual world championship points were awarded. Uh, the first ah. time this had happened in Formula 1 since the wet uh, 1984 Monaco Grand Prix that was stopped just before half distance. Uh, Senna and Berger's results were enough for McLaren to win the Constructors' Championships by 14 points over Williams. Um, this was McLaren's seventh uh, Constructor Championship and their fourth and last championship won uh, with engine partners Honda. Um, so that was a that that was a bit of a crazy one. It's also one of the only races to have been held back to back. It got swapped its position in the uh, the race calendar between ninety five and ninety six. So uh, the, oh, so uh, they finished with it and then they started with it the next season. Yes, oh, wow. they finished in Adelaide in nineteen ninety five, and when they went to Melbourne, it was the start of the season. Oh, that's uh, cool where it's remained ever since. Um, yeah, f- folks who've watched F1 will know all about uh, Melbourne's Grand Prix circuit. It's right in the middle of uh, the city in Albert Park. It's technically a street circuit, but it doesn't really look like a street circuit because it's got large runoff areas. It's pretty fast, pretty flowing. It's not the sort of like hard braking you're used to from most of them. Um, it takes them about two months to build all the stands around what is effectively a, a sort of a, a run a runway around a lake um, in, in the middle of Melbourne. Um, and then it takes them about six weeks to tear the whole thing down uh, the one way in which it definitely is a street circuit though is that it's uh, the turn it's like almost always turning there's not many straights there's actually three DRS zones on this but um, only one of them is actually straight and it's a start finish straight the rest of them always have a little bit of a turn left or right um, and it's also incredibly bumpy it's one of these tracks where going into each turn there's a little bit of give um, uh, underneath the wheels and, and you, so you have to be a little bit careful when it comes to grip uh, it is a 16-turn uh, clockwise circuit. Uh, a lot of it taken very, very fast. Turn one and two, um, super fast into the first DRS zone. Then there's a sort of uh, the rest of that um, uh, part of the circuit is a little bit um, underneath sort of um, trees and whatnot. Um, lots of turns, but again, you're taking most of these turns in like third or fourth gear. Um, there's a there's, DRS... There's one, one chicane, I think. Uh, Daniel Ricardo did a... Uh, um like narrated a lap i'll link that good man too. to do it uh yeah he's he's talking about the really fast chicane i think it's 11 and 12 and you yes. actually shift you shift up uh to hit the second apex you are yeah. from like uh sixth gear at the first apex to seventh at the second 
Yeah, it a lot of the um the turns here are taken way faster than you kind of expect than you kind of than it looks. Um uh, that 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 fast uh, turn is probably like the maybe the, the the second most important set of turns on the circuit because it goes into another um uh, 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 straight another DRS turn um, the, the turn at the end of that is almost 90 degrees it's actually called Ascari which is interesting um, uh, named after it's Monza isn't it that has Ascari I think yeah I Ascari recollect. Yeah, um, uh, that turn is 90 degrees but it's taken at about 4th gear so there's there's a lot of like very very fast uh, turns in this one the one that isn't though is turn 15 the penultimate corner which is taken quite slowly and uh, is a, an interesting spot because of I, I guess it's where the, the pit entrance is as well um, you need to get a good sort of exit out of that to make sure you take 16 pretty fast and into the straight um, but it's just another one of these turns that's like not a natural F1 track turn there's quite a lot of them on this Um which is what makes this track interesting because it's always sort of weaving to the left or right or they have like a lot of do- dual apex corners and stuff which is pretty cool um yeah so it's a i don't know it's a pretty fast lap as well around it um it's one of these tracks that you know we'll get lots of beautiful shots of the city apparently if you're in melbourne over the course of the race weekend all you can hear is the cars um daniel Ricard has talked about that himself um sort of uh, being a young boy and hearing it um but it's also a track that if you're not there on race day you can drive around it yourself uh the rest of the year and we've talked about this before but i've actually sort of done the research this time to figure out uh sort of how how it drives because you know a lot of circuits are you can go in and if you have a race eligible car or you have a street car they'll let you in and you know if you crash on the Nordschleife, you have to pay them whatever ten thousand euro <laughs> um but what's interesting about this one is it's 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 a lot harder to drive and you also drive really slowly so during the nine months of the year where the track isn't actually sort of under fia grand prix prep um most of the track can be driven by any street registered vehicle um either clockwise or anti-clockwise um only the sections between turns three four and five uh, and then five and six differ significantly from the racetrack configuration turn four is actually replaced by a car park access road um which runs uh, turns directly into three and five. The speed limit of the entire track is forty kilometers an hour, which is about twenty-five miles an hour. Oh my god! So it's you're not exactly breaking any fast. You're not getting a, a, an extra point for fastest half lap. Half the pit lane speed limit. It's which I mean, you know, in an F1 car it would look like treacle. Twenty-five miles an hour. I mean, I could probably hit that on a, on my bicycle down a hill. Maybe I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, about eighty percent of the track, and this is why actually, because about eighty percent of the track edge is lined by this like parkland style chain link fencing which means that there's way less room for uh error so if then the f1 cars get so uh i guess that's one of the main reasons that they don't want people crashing into this thing and presumably there's people on the other side of the fences walking around with their dogs it's a it's a park in the middle of a city um there is however substantial shoulder room between the outside of each lane and that fencing um so that kind of gives you a little bit of a runoff as it were um yeah, so it's a, it's a, apparently. I'd love to know if anyone who lives in Melbourne or is a, a race fan has actually has given it a go. If you can, you know, the the way they talk about it, it, it sounds like it's just something you can drive up to and, and spin around, just like a normal road. So, um, yeah, I wonder if anyone who listens has actually had a go. Please let us know if you have. Yeah, that'd be cool. Uh, people who watched last year may recall this is where uh, Haas had their pit nightmare. Oh um, yes, especially if you've watched the first episode of yes. the new Grand Prix documentary series on Netflix, which is awesome. Yeah. 
Um, let's see other notes from last year. Uh, Verstappen spins under pressure from Magnussen. That was mm. that race. Turn two, I think, wasn't it? Uh, yeah, between one and two. Mm. Vettel jumped Hamilton under uh, a safety car, which came out for Grosjean. Um, also, speaking of safety cars, uh, and Formula1.com has a bunch of stats before each race, which is uh, always a fun article to read. Safety car has appeared in eight of the last 11 races at, uh, at Melbourne. So look for that. Hamilton has gotten pole every time since 2014, but Vettel has won in the last two years despite this. Uh, Vettel last had a pole here with Red Bull and has never... Uh, oh, I'm sorry. Uh, he has three wins. Hamilton and Raikkonen both have two. Verstappen has never finished in a position higher than what he started at. <laughs> uh, and the article notes that if Ferrari can finish 1-2 in Australia... The seven times a team has managed that feat before in Melbourne, they've gone on to win that year's Constructors' Championship, while mm. the race winner has gone on to claim the driver's title. There you go. Just finish the season this weekend. Done. Wrap it yep. up. Uh, I have... I, I think this is the most up-in-the-air I remember feeling yeah. about a, a first race. Like, Red Bull could easily be on the podium. Uh, and... Th- there are any number of outside contenders too, like Renault, mm-hmm. McLaren, I like Haas. I don't know. Alfa Romeo. Stranger things have happened. What uh, what are you looking for in particular? I think because right now I'm uh, like I'm coming off Drive to Survive, and I am really hoping that Ricardo's decision to go to Renault yes will bear some fruit. Like I don't need him to win, but like. Renault has been your sort of the very definition of like high performing mediocrity is the way I'd put it. Like they're not, they're nowhere <laughs> they near say, contention. It says that on the side of the car, I think. Yeah. Yeah. It's like they're nowhere near contention uh, despite their resources. They've been, they've been sort of mixing up with teams that are, are not supposed to be in, in their weight class. Uh, this is sort of the season they've got arguably a marquee driver uh, that they need to show that this entire program is for real. Uh, so I think that's probably the main thing I'm looking forward to. The thing that I'm hoping to see is like Daniel Ricardo having a great time of it in front of the the, the home crowd. Uh, that gives us a gives us some reason to feel like a he made a good decision. B Renault is a viable team that's going to be battling it for for a high placement in this championship that's probably my the thing i'm keeping an eye on the most i'm i'm interested in in ricardo for sure especially just with the whole narrative of there never being an, an australian winner of that race um he almost got on the podium you might remember a number of years ago and he ended up getting a penalty which knocked him back down again like I, I, I think that's for sure a really interesting one. I'm very interested in in some of the other um, uh, mid mid sort of t- tier teams to see how uh, I kind of think Haas might be a bit of, a bit of a dark horse. Like they 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 sort of had a lot of what they needed last year, but it was just the reality of them being a smaller team and. You know, I think Grosjean especially, Magnussen I think is a bit more of a head on his shoulders, but I think these drivers sort of rely on momentum a bit and a bad start to the season can really sort of like take the wind out of their sails. Yeah. Um, 
So I'm I'm interested to see that. And then the other one is Alfa Romeo because you got Kimi Räikkönen. Who, you, you, you can throw anything at Kimi Räikkönen. I don't think he's going to lose his head. Um, uh, and Antonio Giovinazzi, I, I think I, for me, he's less of a known quantity. But I'm interested to see where the interesting battle happens there or whether or not either of these teams surprise us because... Um, yeah, maybe it's fresh on my mind because of the Netflix doc, but they almost got, was it fourth and fifth, I think, last year in, in, yeah. in Hosted in, in Melbourne. Um, so I'm interested in that. And then I just, I've, I've never been more excited to watch practice and qualifying. Like we're going to learn <laughs> so much before Sunday this weekend. Um, uh, and a lot of those sort of unknown questions are going to are gonna be answered. Yeah, I would love to see Haas redeem themselves for sure. Um, you know, even just like just finish the race, I think would be would be nice. Points would be great for people who don't know what we're talking about and who maybe haven't watched that series. Uh, they were they were in they were on course for as as Danny said a fourth and fifth uh, place finish. Uh, the best start to the season they ever would have. That's a great start to the season, no matter who you are. It would have mm-hmm. been like mind blowing for Haas to be in that situation. And then they brought their first car in for its pit stop. And it left, and you saw somebody frantically waving his arms, uh, one of the mechanics. And he, the, it was revealed that they hadn't attached a wheel properly. Uh, the car had to be pulled over and retired immediately because that is unsafe to drive. Uh, and then they had to bring their next car in. And the same thing happened mm. on a different wheel of uh, the, their other car. And it was also retired, uh, you know, basically that same lap. And so in the course of two laps, uh, two pit stops... Haas DNF'd both their cars on an unforced error. And it's one of the most excruciating things I've ever seen happen in F1 team. Yeah. Um, it's because that is not that is not just bad luck. That's not like two engines blue. Shit happens like that sometimes. It's really unfortunate. Usually it means you need to have a, a stern conversation with your with your supplier. Uh but two wheels not attached is just what are you doing? doing mm. yeah i'd like yeah the psychology of a pit crew who just scuppered somebody's race having to then go out you know a couple of seconds later and do it to a different car <laughs> it's, yeah it's like uh yeah it's your worst nightmare you know it's walking out on stage in your school with you know only in your underpants it's really yeah. like awful stuff um yeah so i mean i'm sure that won't happen again <laughs> but i you know we i remember all eyes were on the next race actually last year remember when that happened and, and they did just fine so yeah. um yeah it, i i think there's just so much so many different little interesting um stories to, to come out of this like it's gonna be very interesting to see like you know uh uh red bull like both their teams as well like uh, there's just so much unknown with with how either of these teams are going to do um Danny Kvyat is back. I know. I'm just so excited to see him. Like between Kubica and Kvyat, like, I, like there's so many drivers. There's so many like. Who's he going to ram next? Yeah, I like torpedo. Yeah, <laughs> I, I want to. There's so many drivers that I want to be watching. Like I want to see how Kimi does in a in a in a lesser car. I want to see you know how George Russell does. Like I think the, I'm the most excited on. for Leclerc. Yeah, mm, totally. What, like, can he take it to Vettel? What is that going to look like? Are they going to yeah. let him? It might be the Verstappen uh, Ricardo thing we had last year, but I mean, it'll if if it is that, it'll be that turned up to eleven because Vettel does not play nice with with you know the young pro, you know prodigy coming in. No, yeah. I mean like he got his first whiff of competition from Ricardo, and like yeah. pieced out. Like yes, the Ferrari offer was there. He was clearly like already thinking about what his sort of 
career victory lap was going to be and it was it was going to be with ferrari uh, yeah. But at the same time, I always got the sense that the minute Daniel Ricardo started pressuring Vettel, it stopped being fun for Seb at Red yeah. Bull. Um, so I and am... they gave him like Kimmy was the best teammate he could have possibly had at Ferrari. Yes, taking that into account. Yeah, but he also with a with an ideal situation, he didn't make the best of it. So mm. uh, yeah, I'm very curious about Leclerc, um, Lando Norris. I am really curious to see what we've yeah. what we've got there. Um, I racing it... fan. Oh really? <laughs> oh yeah. He he streams. He and Max Verstappen and I think somebody else. They're I racing uh, guys. They're they are all on the same like esports team called I think it's called Redline. <laughs> and they yeah. all stream and play I racing. Yeah, it's awesome. I need to look this up. Yeah, uh, I'll see if I can find some links in the show notes. Also, let me throw this out there. What do you think it signifies if Honda-powered Red Bulls and Tarrasos mm. just demolish McLaren at this race? <laughs> yeah, that I mean, yeah, the Red Bull Honda thing, oh, which just I'm not going to say too much about uh, the documentary, but man, it just. The, the Netflix documentary adds so much nuance and and context and drama to these situations, uh, especially around uh, the Renault-Red Bull relationship. I can't wait. I haven't gotten to that episode yet. We are going yeah. to do these, by the way, on the on the Patreon, uh, Patreon podcast. Absolutely. We're, we're going to tackle this whole series because it's so good. If you, yeah. Yeah, g- yeah. I don't want to say go get Netflix, but like figure out how to watch these and watch them. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's very bingeable. It's 10 episodes of 35 minutes each. So you can maybe sign up for a a month of Netflix for like eight bucks or whatever it is and power through. Definitely worth it. It's worth watching just for the smoldering tension between uh, Cyril (laughs) Bittable and Christian Horner. It's (laughs) just like, oh my God, just Sexual tension. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I think Racing Point's going to be an interesting one to watch. Maybe not in the first race. Apparently they had a 2018 uh, chassis in testing, but we'll have a 2019 oh. car for Melbourne. Hmm. Um, their uh, uh, team principal, Otmar uh, Safnauer on Formula1.com says it's going to be really tough in the midfield. It will be a development race in Melbourne. Uh, luckily, right. we've got the funding behind us to bring upgrades to every race, uh, including Australia. Um, anything else? Botas, probably real hungry. He crashed in Q3 last year. Hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. We haven't mentioned him much at all, except for his weight loss or lack thereof. <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. I, I'd like. I, I can see him being overtaken by a lot of people this year. I think. He, I worry for him. That like, I mean, this is he's got to go balls out this year, especially after last year. Like, he, yeah, he did all right in his first for them, but he didn't get a win last year, right? Or he would have had that no. one win, except he handed it to Hamilton, right? For the yeah, team orders. Yeah, so I don't know. Yeah, the, yeah, you're right. He's, you know, he's got a lot to lose and nothing to lose this year. Guys, let's talk about tires. Oh, We're bringing the C2, the C3, and the <laughs> C4 to Australia. Uh, notable selections here. So every um, the explosive every, C4. Every every race, uh, each driver gets to decide how many of each uh, compound they're taking to each race. So. You can take 13 sets of however many tires you want. 
uh, but you got to take at least one of each because you have to use uh, at least two of the compounds uh, during your race. So I think the only real notable one here is that uh, Hulkenberg only took one medium. Mm. He's taken two hards and 10 softs. And he's the only one to... Uh, <laughs> Hulkenberg only rides hard or rides soft. He doesn't yeah. have... He doesn't go medium. Yeah. Uh, everybody else is taken between one and two hards uh, and two and three mediums. And then the rest are softs. Um, weather for qualifying looks to be a balmy 80 degrees Fahrenheit Ooh. or 27 Celsius if you're nasty. Hey. Uh, 50% humidity, but no precipitation, it seems. Uh, winds look to be about, let's see, 20 kilometers an hour or 12 miles an hour uh, for race day. So that's, I think, enough to affect you. Or I'm sorry, qualifying day. Similar for race day uh in uh everything temperature humidity and precipitation so uh warm humid a little bit of wind no precipitation uh and let's see standings everybody's at zero so don't have to go through that uh fantasy standings also at zero if you'd like to join us in our official formula one fantasy league sign it up right now do it uh you can uh follow the link in the in the show notes uh you get to choose um, five drivers and one team uh, to to go into each race weekend. I'm working with uh, Leclerc, Ricardo, Grosjean, Gasly, Cafiet, and Mercedes. Grosjean, yeah, yeah, interesting. Is there a rule that you were following there? Yeah, so there? every every um, driver and team has a like uh, a dollar amount value assigned oh. to them, and so you ah. have a certain cap. Like Bargain you can't just pick. Romaine. Yeah, you can't just pick. You know, Vettel, uh, so, Hamilton, Grosjean was your L block, basically. Or you're just like right in <laughs> yeah. there. He's your loose. Ch- you picked him up at the counter. He was like at a little, uh, little, little chocolate bar stand there. He's a steal. Threw him in. Yeah. Uh, you can also assign um, turbo to a driver, who, and that means he they get double points, uh, but they have to have a value of less than uh, 19 million. <laughs> okay. Yeah, What's the cheapest one? Like, it's funny that they went for a million on this when... Uh, let me see. <laughs> I mean, the cheapest drivers are probably some of the rookies. Mm. Um, yeah. What's a, what's a George Russell going to put me back? Uh, let's see. Russell put you back uh, six million. Okay. Uh, but what about uh, Kofiet, Alexander Albon? Kvyat and Kubica are both 5.5 million. What's Albon? Uh, Albin and and the Williams team are both at six million. <laughs> Can have a whole Williams or one album. I like it. Yeah, uh, yeah. And Mer- the Mercedes team is the is the most at thirty two million. Then we got Hamilton at thirty point five million. It's kind of mm. fun. Uh, you yeah. can change it up for every race. Uh, I think last year I just picked one team and left them the whole time. Um, but yeah, we got uh, we got a few people. Let's see how many people we have uh, in our league here. Have you tweeted the uh, the link already? Uh, I have, yeah. Okay. Um, five hundred entrants, five hundred two wow. to the Shift F one league. <laughs> Some really great names in here. Uh, Wish and Minnow. Nice. <laughs> that's that's my win best team name already. Uh, Pastor Maldonado's crash team. Uh. IndyCar rejects. Red Bull gives you wins. Orange, <laughs> you glad I didn't save Verstappen? 
yeah, really some top tier stuff. I saw Lando Norris has already uh, uh, picked his team. <laughs> yes, he did. <laughs> I tweeted that right on the. You did, yeah, yeah. F1 on, okay, uh, check out a uh, Shift F1 podcast on Twitter for that hot hot banger. Oh yeah. Uh, all right, that is fantasy. Please join us; it's fun. Uh, and uh, let's go and do some emails here real quick. I already read one. Uh, Shift to F1 podcast at gmail.com if you'd like to send us some stuff. Uh, Kevin says, Hey, Shift F1 crew, I really enjoyed your Williams episode and can't wait to hear more like it. During the episode, you guys wondered about the people that pushed Claire into her position at Williams. Mm. And I think I can help answer that. During her interview on the Beyond the Grid podcast, which, by the way, uh, has started up again, they started with an interview with Kimi Raikkonen, which is fabulous. Wow. Um, <clears throat> you ever hear 50 minutes of dead air? You're about to. <laughs> his so at the beginning of every podcast, he makes his interview subject say, mm. "I'm so and so. Welcome to Beyond the Grid." Mm. Uh, Kimmy really nails it. Uh, anyway, during her interview on the Beyond the Grid podcast, Claire was presented on the subject and said that Total Wolf, a major Williams stakeholder, and Bernie Eccleston both pushed her to take the job. Huh. Thanks again, Kevin. Thank you, Kevin. Not Sir Frank. Mm, yeah, I think, I think in that documentary she said something like, "It wasn't yeah. given, or he wasn't expecting to yeah. hand it to her, or, or he something. was kind." Yeah, uh, I remember that. Yeah, it's probably going to give it to Dicky. Nip it. Is he the is he the sad archive son? He was you know his his friend. Uh, <laughs> it's just me and Dicky down here. Oh yeah, God, God. God Dicky. God, just the worst thing I've ever seen in F1 documentary. Oh. Like, just the saddest, like... <laughs> you can't write that. Um, and then one question here from Unsigned. Uh, hey, guys, I would love to hear you guys, uh, your guys' insight on the junior teams and conflict of interest. Uh, so hmm. uh, here are some of my questions and thoughts. What, why, do junior, why do teams have junior teams? Do the junior teams always have worse power units? Also, what about the conflict of interest with teams providing other teams with power units? I uh, really enjoyed the podcast and appreciate you guys doing it. Uh, so I think uh, they are um, referring to like customer teams. Hmm. Uh, and I, I, this, is, this is one of the weird... It was certainly something I, I had to get used to because you don't really have an equivalent in other sports to this necessarily. Um is that you know Mercedes sells their engine to to Williams and to Racing Point. Uh, Ferrari sells their engine to Haas and uh, Alfa Romeo. Um, and so, I, I conflict of interest, I think, is a, a, an interesting way to put it. It's more like I I don't think they're racing. I don't think any of those teams are racing each other. Like, yeah. I, I can imagine a conflict of interest arising at a certain point, but it does seem like both teams have different strategies and goals for each year. And they're, you know, in happenstance in some races, for sure, there are instances where they are battling each other or not. And, you know, we all can see that, that they take care around each other. But j- during the season, I don't see that being the case. I, I, with drivers is the one position I can see, you know, there being very d- d- definite collusion as it were like you know use red bull and toro rosso being the you know toro rosso was effectively the the sort of graduation party for a lot of red bull drivers they came up through through the ranks or back down in the case of danny um but uh 
yeah i i actually don't know i I always assumed that it was a sort of a financial thing like a like a like just a reality of operating costs at a certain level meant that it made sense almost to have that second team running or to 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 offset some of the operational costs onto onto something else you know to earn some money out of your development as it were but i i don't actually i don't actually know it's unclear to me what the like information sharing is between, and I'm sure it varies from team to team, but I, I imagine it'd be very close for someone like Red Bull and Toro Rosso, but like, I don't know how much data racing point gives Mercedes on, you know, their, or certainly the other way around. Mm. Um, but you know, these, these teams, they are paying for their engines. So that's kind of maybe where a lot of the relationships stop. Uh, although the the constructor of the engine does have some sort of obligation to to give them not only a working engine but you know knowledge of how to install it how it works uh, and I think that's where a lot of the tensions from you know Red Bull and Renault uh, kind of emerged. So yeah, I think there's there's a couple things here uh, that there are basically junior teams like Taro Rosso. Uh, where it is part of the same overall company and structure, and they are uh, sort of they they are the B team, right? Like Taro Rosso is where Red Bull has developed its drivers for and promotion. Their yeah, like they put a Honda they, in, in there before the they put it in the big one. Yeah. Um, but also then this year the Taro Rosso is, and this is increasingly common. Uh, the phrase you'll hear tossed around a lot is uh, it's taking its back end from Red Bull. And so a lot of teams are basically selling, when they say that, they're not just saying you're putting an engine in your chassis. You are taking the entire back end, the airflow, the exhausts, mm. uh, the transmission, everything from your supplier, plunking it down. I don't know, maybe you're slapping your rear wing on it. Uh, but by and large, that rear structure uh from behind the cockpit from you know all the way to the tail of the car that was produced design engineered by somebody else uh i don't think teams do what used to happen which is that you'd you'd sell people last year's model engine uh last year's model power unit that used to be something that like people would be running uh a year old ferrari engine in their car yeah. uh, i, I think don't that, that they were doing that even up to like a couple years ago hmm. Yeah, I don't think they do it anymore. Uh, but the problem is you have these gray situations like Alfa Romeo is <laughs> technically a separate team from Ferrari, but they do they are ultimately owned by the same company. Now, Ferrari is a completely different department within that company. Like Ferrari is it's kind of it's, it operates on its own profit and loss. Uh, within within Fiat, but nevertheless, I believe Alfa Romeo is also owned by Fiat. Um, and so where you run into stuff like that is how real is that team, right? Is this just is this just a way to pretend like oh yeah they're they're their own team? Alfa Romeo is definitely uh, a real team racing for itself. They just happen to use all the same components. And uh, Charles Leclerc was a Ferrari development driver driving for uh, the former Alfa Romeo Sauber promoted up into Ferrari. That's where it gets kind of weird. Um, and then you have, and, and I think this is probably the thing that's going away. 
things got bad between Renault and Red Bull when Renault started building its own car. When Renault was just supplying power units, Red Bull was their customers. Red Bull, Red Bull, Renault. Everyone was happy yeah. with that. And then yeah, they didn't have a team for a while. Like they, Renault bought the Lotus team, which went out of business a couple of years ago. So, yeah. So the the thing there is that's where the real toxicity built up because you had Renault. They're building their own engine, but now they're also building their own car. And those design teams are all talking to each other, and then they're handing off this engine to Red Bull and saying, well, here's your power unit. And Red Bull was doing better, and I think that's the key. Because, you know, Alfa Romeo is not challenging Ferrari for race wins at, at the current stage. Right. Right, and that's, and that's, that's just unsustainable. That's that, like, how, like, when you are selling your engine to somebody and they are a better team, I think this is one of the other reasons why, like, Christian Horner and, and everyone started getting so aggro about the the engine failures that Renault was having for Red Bull were unacceptable. But there's got to be a part of you that starts to wonder, like, are they doing this to me? You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, am I not getting the real power units? Am I getting lesser versions? Uh, am, I, am I getting sort of the uh, the export model of the uh, of the engine? And I, and I think that's where things get. Uh, pretty unsustainable so it's it's a weird dynamic and i think this is one of the things that people are trying to sort of pin down with the next uh championship with the next set of regulations with the next agreement for f1 because we've kind of ended up in the situation where there's a whole bunch of teams basically operating second tier teams or being so fist in glove with mid-pack runners that it doesn't entirely look like an independent team. It doesn't look like their competition can ever fully be on the level. And I think that's one of the things that long-term people want to see change, right? They they want to feel like when, you know, when an Alfa Romeo is racing a Ferrari, if that ever happens, they're mm-hmm. actually racing and not basically, you know, running behind, uh, you know, the, the, the elder brother. Yeah, I... <laughs> personally I, I i don't think i really subscribe to the conspiracy theories around that kind of stuff like if alpha was right behind a or in front of a ferrari would they get told to move aside or something i don't think that'll happen i think what'll happen is if an, if an alpha romeo finished ahead of a ferrari you can expect uh the ferrari team principal to maybe leave soon i think that's what happens i don't think it happens moment to moment in the races um, but it's definitely a weird th- complication to the sport that frankly, uh, can provide a lot of fun drama. So, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I think, you know, all things being equal, we'd love if every single team was fighting tooth and nail, but there is that sort of, you know, that reality to the whole thing that is that like, it's, it's difficult to set up a formula one team. It's difficult to finance it. And, and so often we lose teams and we're trying to make sure that there's 10 for the next season and all that. So it's kind of one of these concessions. I feel like you kind of have as well as a viewer of the sport where you kind of put it to the back of your mind a little bit, at least I do, where it's like, you know, I wish, I wish there was more competition. I wish there was, you know, less of the AB team stuff, but ultimately I want there to be 20 cars on the grid. So I'll just swallow it this year again. And, and just you know let it be yeah. um 
but yeah totally i agree i agree, I agree wholeheartedly that like it, it is the type of thing you'd love to see not in the sport but you kind of feel like there needs to be some you know more structural change to the finances to get more people in and and, and make that a reality yeah, but, you know, I, I honestly don't even mind watching uh, a team like Haas who buys as much as legally possible right. uh, from other teams, mostly Ferrari. Um, That's true. That's different a little bit. To I think the because it's like, stuff, though. you know, and when you know that's happening, then you it's exciting to see, OK, what can they do with this? Right. What can they do with uh, the um, the physical parts but not necessarily all the funding of a giant brand like Ferrari. So, yeah. you know, I think the more knowledge you get, the more um, the more interesting it is. Uh, like, and I think that's, that the, the, if you look at the Ferrari power unit, I think when you look at the difference between relationship between Haas and Ferrari and Alfa Romeo and Ferrari, you see the two sort of yeah. sides of the coin, right? Where like there's, when there's business involved, it's different to when it's just simply selling the engine. Yeah. Uh, you can also hit us up on Twitter if you like. Follow at Shift F1 Podcast for show updates and any fun F1 stuff we run across. Uh, shout outs this week to Tohir T on Twitter, uh, who says, The Chemical Brothers' We've Got to Try is legitimately my new favorite video of 2019. So this is like a weird Chemical Brothers and uh, F1 crossover. Yeah. Where they cross-promoted this music video. Chemical and... Brothers were getting, they, they saw the Formula EJ and they were like, we want in on this. <laughs> and they released this uh, insane music video uh, that I will link because it is uh, it is legitimately great. I really, really enjoy it. The only thing I noticed is that Formula One were infringing on my copyright of Nyum because they <laughs> they used Nyum in their tweet. Um which is why there's so much F1 branding on our Patreon now. You know, that's why I used a picture of Kimi Raikkonen because I'm like, tit for tat, you guys. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> thanks also to uh, Max RR and Derrid00 uh, for linking us to uh, that spotters, spotter's guide uh, on Reddit, which again, we will link in the show notes. Uh, also, I noticed in the Reddit comments, someone noted on, uh, there's an article on topgear.nl. Uh, they asked... Max Verstappen about the color of his uh, camera bar, which is usually how we discriminate between uh, drivers of the same team. And usually it go. My thought, my what I assumed was that the black bar always went to the driver with the most seniority. Yeah. Uh, but apparently he's Verstappen says uh, it'll it'll just be the same uh, as last year. Yellow. I like to keep uh, my colors. So. If that's the case, then I guess you just get to pick. Uh, or maybe because he's the senior one, he gets to pick. So who knows? Or that seems like it's needless to complicate hell. Yeah. Yeah. I he's mean, like a baseball like, player. Yeah. Just like, no, I won my first Grand Prix with a yellow bar. So ergo. Yeah. Uh, I'm curious to see if Ricardo gets uh, the yellow bar because Hulkenberg's been there, but Ricardo has like a lot more wins and podiums and stuff so maybe i don't actually know if it's seniority it might be like career points who knows Mm. um but yeah thanks to everybody who wrote in and said hey around the internet uh but now it is time to see what other racing is happening this weekend around the world that's not a great setup you gotta you gotta you gotta ask me you gotta you gotta roll it into it what time is it danny (laughs) 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 <laughs> it's time 
to race around the world. Oh, I haven't heard it in so long. Uh, <laughs> the World Endurance Championship is happening this weekend. Uh, starting on Friday, the 1,000 miles of Sebring oh my is God. happening. I think featuring Fernando Alonso. I wish there was some sort of a podcast that could really teach me about how that all worked. I wonder mm. if someone will put it on a Patreon feed at some stage in the future. That's a great idea. Uh, we've also got supercars this weekend in Melbourne on the Grand Prix circuit uh, for the... Oh, man. Bow... Bow... Re- bow Repairs. Good repairs. Bow, bow Repairs Melbourne 400. Uh, there are four races of supercars happening over the Grand Prix weekend. That's crazy. Yikes. Uh, the IMSA WeatherTech Sports... Mm, WeatherTech Sports Car <laughs> Championship uh, is also racing at Sebring uh, the following day, I think, to uh, WBC. For their 12 hours of Sebring. Uh, World Superbike Championship uh, is at the Chang International Circuit in Thailand. Thailand. Uh, the NHRA is at Gainesville for the Amelie Motor Oil Gator Nationals. Big, big fans of French cinema down in Florida. <laughs> <laughs> Certainly are. And we got NASCAR. Oh, my. They're at the Auto Club Speedway, a.k.a. Fontana. You may know it as. For the Auto Club 400. (laughs) I guess it makes sense. And finally, Formula One. I'm going to switch it up this year, you guys. I'm going to say Eastern Times. Oh, my goodness. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, We got Practice One, Thursday, March 14th at 9 p.m. Hmm. Uh, airing in the U.S. on ESPN3, The Trace. Uh, practice 2, Friday, March 15th at 1 a.m. on 1 a.m. on ESPN News. Practice 3 is Friday, March 15th at 11 p.m. Uh, on ESPN News. These times are so weird because it's in Australia. Qualifying <laughs> is Saturday, March 16th at 2 a.m. Oh. on ESPN2, The Deuce. It's not happening for me. Uh. <laughs> And uh, the race, fellas, Sunday, March 17th at 1 a.m. on ESPN. I'm going to be in Austin for South by Southwest when the race and quali are on. I wonder if there's an F1 group there. Because we did Ooh. have a good bunch. Of, I mean, it's an F1 city, right? Yeah. So I got People came out to our, to our meetup when we were there. Right. Yeah, hit me up at Daniel Dwyer on Twitter if there's something going on. I wouldn't I wouldn't mind. It's either that or some video game party. Ugh. Gross. Yeah, great opportunity for somebody to end up with Daniel Dwyer just awkwardly hanging out on their couch. In the living room, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah and totally. being like, uh, Zion just crashed here, right? That was a great race. Um, I'm staying sleepy. near, uh, is it Zinkler Park? I always forget the name of it. You got a, you got a yeah. toothbrush? I mean, I'm sure they do. I can use, yeah. you know? <laughs> Well, uh, until next time, I'm Drew Scanlon. That is Danny O'Dwyer and Rob Zachney. If you'd like to support the show, you can do so at patreon.com slash shift F1. You can find Rob at his day job at waypoint.vice.com. I, on Twitter, am at Drew Scanlon. Danny. At Danny O'Dwyer. And Rob. At Rob Zachney. Fantastic. Anything else, you guys? 
Danny, looking forward to it? Yeah, can't wait. This is a lot of qu- more question marks this year than any other ones. I hate that feeling after the first couple of races when you feel like maybe you have all the answers. Uh, but there's so much up in the air this year that that might not happen for quite a while. Um, I'm, I'm very excited to see how the drivers do, how the cars do. Uh, yeah. This is the great thing about the long season. Like time was, mm. first, few, first few races, you were like, I think I know how this is going to go. There was a point last season, you can go back and roll the tape, where I was like, this is over, right? Ferrari's got this in the bag. This is <laughs> donezo. Yeah, even even after uh, the end of Australia, it's not the end uh, of anything. So, yes, you're right. I'm very, I'm very excited. I think I'm going to go throw some prawns on a hot stove. And uh, until not a, <laughs> next not time. Not a Barbie? No? No, no. All right. Uh, have a good race weekend, everyone. <laughs> we will see you all next time. Yeah.